Um, we're passing these out to y'all right now. We're from Texas, so if it's more than one, it's all y'all. And I'm giving you a, <laughs> we're giving you a bunch of handouts today, but there's a couple documents that these most of these guidelines came from and that you should know about. This one's a family uh, and community practices that promote survival and growth and development of children. Uh, most of these we've posted on our website, so please feel free to go to our website. Uh, and we've got... It's hard because when you read a WHO document, they're like 60 and 70 and 80 pages. So where do you find the 10 bullet points in that entire, uh, you know, in that entire paper? It's really hard. So we tried to go through them and break them down and try to pick out the points that we thought were applicable to short-term missions. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. This is the other one that you guys should, uh, if you're doing short-term missions, you really should familiarize with, uh, familiarize with yourself with this document. It's a WHO uh, growth standards identification of severe acute malnutrition in infants and children. This is a biggie for community, community health practice. Uh, and a lot of what we're going to cover today is, is covered, was from right from these documents and a number of others. And I'll show you the reference list when we get down. Uh, Candy and I started in missions, I don't know, about 10 years ago. 2001. We were uh, part-time for a couple of years of led about eight to ten teams a year, I think, for a while. And that got to be a little bit much. And then we went full-time for a few years with Mercy Ships for a couple of years and uh, ran their community health programs and, and worked alongside the ships and tried to our, – our, our thought process there was we wanted to try to develop programs that strategically could, be, could utilize short-term groups in, in a long-term program. In other words, finding the short-term – the short-term, short-termers, connecting them with long-term programs and, and making a measurable difference in these communities. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and we're still kind of thinking through that process. And you'll see today, of, of, it's a challenge. I don't think they can hear you. Can you, everybody hear me? I've, I, I'm losing my voice, which was, is kind of comical that the one day I have to speak, I haven't lost my voice in probably five years. But... Uh, Right there, yeah. Why don't you do page now? Yeah, I'm we, we started an organization <laughs> called the Christian Health Service. Uh, the idea of the Christian Health Service is to be an exclusively medical and healthcare missionary sending organization. Uh, we connect folks with mission hospitals and long-term programs is a core component of what we do. The reason we do that is we've identified there's some big problems with with some of the way short-term missions are done. And 95% of them could be eliminated with the, the thought process of going in and working through local health systems and hospitals rather than going and setting up in a local church. So what do the UNICEF, WHO UNICEF guidelines say? They, they cover a lot of areas, but... There are really four key components, safety, health education and counseling, prevention and treatment, and assessment. And those are really kind of the four broad categories that we distilled out of some of this information. Most of what you're going to see in these documents really relates to the, four millennium de- or the three Millennium Development Goals that are geared towards health, Millennium Development Goal 4, 5, and 6. Goal four is to reduce under five uh, child mortality by two-thirds by 2015. 
some countries have made tremendous progress in that regard. Some have a long, long way to go. Goal five, reduce maternal mortality by three-fourths by uh, 2015. Again, some countries have made progress, not as much progress as child health. And the reason we're going to talk a lot about child health when you talk about these programs is that one of the core indicators for community health programs and, and, and whether they're successful or not, and if you want to measure the overall health of a community, look at the health of the children. And, and the more you can do in that regard, the more you're going to improve the overall health of the community. And, and if you work in these communities, you realize that a lot of what you're going to do is dealing with moms and kids. Goal six, uh, halt and or reduce the spread of HIV, uh, TB, malaria, and other communicable diseases by 2015. Again, we have a long way to go on all of these, th- all of these areas. Some countries are, are a lot farther away and are not anywhere close to meeting their 2015 goal. And some countries have, have done quite well. Uh, Can I interject? We tried to get two mics. We're sorry. This is the best we could do. Um, there's some great um, video presentations out there on this information from Micah Challenge. If you look them up online, they really give you the up-to-date where we're at with this. We're supposed to be two-thirds of the way there. I don't even think we're halfway there. So if you want the most updated information on a lot of that, the Micah Challenge has taken this project on. And for your churches and your organizations, they have some amazing videos that you can use to just kind of make people aware of what's going out there, on out there. And it, they are a Christian organization. They've done a great job with this. Yeah, they really have. Just to add on that, uh, Micah Challenge is based in Australia. And, and what they're really doing is trying to hold governments accountable to their commitment to provide the resources necessary to really m- make this kind of community transformation uh, available to both Christian and non-Christian NGOs. But really trying to, to work forward, and it's and it's probably they're probably worth taking a look at. The reason that WHO and the guidelines focus on <laughs> you can on, talk, but don't breathe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the reason that they focus on child health in a lot of these areas is that these are the areas that have really proven responsive to community health education programming. You know, specifically programming from you know from from the Christian world like community health evangelism or CHE. These are programs that are very responsive to that type uh, of community program. Uh, but when we think of, if you're, if you're, how many physicians do we have in here? Uh, just as, okay. When, when you think about uh, how you treat, uh, oftentimes what we, the, the core component of what we leave out is the counseling and, and the education component. And that's got to be a huge component of what we do in these communities. Uh, I, I always try to get people to frame it as assess counsel and then treat not you know not treat first but assess counsel and then treat so education always becomes a core component of of how you're how you're seeing kids and how you're seeing adults in these communities probably the most responsive of the, re- the most responsive area is child health because it doesn't require a lot of fancy uh, you know, equipment to sustain in, in good health infrastructure. Most of them are responsive to community health programs. Now let's talk about safety guidelines. If you've done short-term missions, this is probably uh, it, it, it's a it's it's hard to get this through to the short-term mission community, but this is vitally important. 
Safety standards have no international boundaries. Standards that exist in developed countries also exist in developing countries. Uh, and, a good, and a good example of this is, you know, licensed personnel should be ones dispensing medications in any health outreach, whether that be out of a hospital or whether that be out of a church. And those medications need to be dispensed only in child-resistant containers. Uh, and I know that's hard, and it's a kind of a mindset shift from a lot of the places that dispense in Ziploc baggies. Uh, but we really want to get to that point. <laughs> Hi, this is a standard. How many of you are moms and dads in here? You know, would we put our pills in a Ziploc bag and put them on the counter? No, absolutely not. And this is for the safety of the kids. And we just did a trip in Haiti, and every single patient received their medication in a pill bottle with a safety child top on it, and we had to teach each parent how to open it. They had no clue. They had no clue how to close it. And we also had to teach them, you have to keep these things away from your children. You know, if, if we have to have, do it here, we need to do it anywhere we go. I mean, every, you know, you think about what he said last night. They are all people. They're persons. And we have to protect them as much as we protect ourselves and our own families. This is a word that we need to become familiar with in the short-term missions community, and it's called pharmacovigilance. And the WHO published a paper back, I believe, in 2006 on pharmacovigilance, and, and the idea of it is, I mean, it covers a lot of different areas, and it's one of those 100-page papers that nobody ever reads the whole thing except me. Uh, it's true. He really reads it all. <laughs> Uh, but when you come, when you pull out the points, I, I mean, there there are some areas on uh, on distribution and supply, and but when it comes right down to dispensing, uh, and there are some core safety things that that we really are, are maybe neglecting in the short term community. We want to think through. If you guys want uh, want containers for your short term trips, email me. I'll send you a number of links where you can get them cheap for a hundred dollars. You can have enough. You know, you'll have two duffel bags full of containers, and you'll you'll run out, and you can leave them behind at the clinic. Yeah, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of ways to do this, and they're really cheap. And and it's not to say you know it saves money. We want to be good stewards, but Ziploc baggies, yeah, not so much. According to WHO, there are 125 child deaths each day as a result of poisonings, and the majority of these are pharmaceutical ingestions. And uh, you know, we have to pay attention to that. You don't want a child to die as a result of your missions effort. It, it, it could be terribly catastrophic. And if you come to our next presentation, we're going to review a number of case presentations where that, that kind of thing happened. Okay. I'm going to let you handle this one. You look too quiet. <laughs> I'm never quiet, can you tell? Uh, these are the WHO patient safety guidelines. We're going to teach the mother to give oral drugs at home. Um, how many of you have gone on a short-term missions trip? Have you? And you've had the pharmacy all lined up, and you're standing there trying to explain to them what they're supposed to do with these medicines in a language that they understand, and it might be written on there and it might not. Um, we have come up with another solution to that, and it works extremely well, and believe it or not, it takes less time. 
we thought we were going to be backlogged and never be able to see the amount of people that we normally see, and we actually saw more. At each station, you have your licensed professional who goes to the farm on at sea and gets the drugs that you need and goes back and with the translator explains to the mother how to give the medications, and, and we just followed these guidelines. We determine the appropriate drugs and dosage for the child's age or weight, tell the mother the reason for giving the drug to the child, demonstrate how to measure a dose, have her do it right then and there, watch the mother practicing measuring the dose, ask the mother to give the first dose to the child. You know that they've got the first dose, you've seen them do it, you know they how to do it. If you need to gently and lovingly correct them in any way, you, this is your opportunity to make sure that it's done correctly every time. Explain carefully how to give the drug, then label and package the drug. If more than one drug will be giving, we're going to collect, count, and package each drug separately. We're not going to put anything together. Everything's going to have its own package. And then uh, explain that all the tablets or syrup must be used to finish the course of the treatment, even if the child gets better, as we know that. And then um, check the mother's understanding before she leaves the clinic. You know, I have a household of ADD going on sometimes, and I'm infamous for saying, would you please tell me what I just said to you? We really need to do that. We need to have them repeat it back to us. That's the only way we are going to be sure that they understand everything we say to them. Mother must be instructed on the safety, packaging, and storage. They don't realize that this is dangerous. We watch mothers try to give too many vitamins, not realizing that this could be dangerous. So every detail has to be covered with the medications. It's very tough to meet the standard in, try, in sending patients to a central pharmacy. And, and we, we really try to look through it and say, okay, how can we as a short-term team meet this kind of standard? And the only way we came up with it was, one, either the pro providers go get the medicine from the pharmacy, bring it back, and dispense them in the pharmacy consultation rooms, or uh, the other option is, is that a private pharmacy consultation area is available after they receive their medicines. But if you remember, I mean, I see a lot of people have been on short-term trips. Now, if you can picture mom... In the, front of, of, in, in the front of a pharmacy who've got 100 people behind her trying to, uh, you know, trying to herd her children that are running off and not, you know, so they don't get lost in the crowd. And she's really going to perceive what we're trying to do, you know, what we're trying to tell her in, in, at a pharmacy counter. It, it's not a good environment to try to do that. Uh, and, and, it, and it has potential disaster written all over it. So we just need to think through how we're doing it. It's not that doing it is inappropriate. It's, it's how we do it sometimes. Maybe we need to think through to do a little bit better in order to keep with the standards. And you'd be surprised. This really does, doing it that way really does work better, and you will see more patients. And even if it slows you down, it's better, it, it's better to go a little slower and, and make sure nobody gets hurt. Perfect time to evangelize, too. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Out of these documents uh, that I, I showed you earlier, we, we, I kind of tried to bullet down a few core points. Uh, WHO recommends four general health education interventions that have been proven to reduce child mortality. And these four points for education are very simple. Care-seeking behaviors of parents. You know, when do they seek care? We want moms to come away with that information. Of nutrition. Maternal and child nutrition. There is a lot of things out there, a lot of information out there that you can share 
that even in resource-poor communities, how they can improve maternal and child nutrition. Things as simple as putting a teaspoon of oil on rice and, and things that you can really help them develop strategies uh, to improve their nutrition, even when they have very limited resources. Uh, three, home management of diarrhea and dehydration. These are, these, that's a real big one that you want to teach on. Four, malaria prevention, maternal and child, especially in, well, in high prevalence areas. The reason we direct our efforts in this area is because if you're going to go out there, you really can plug into the long-term big picture. You can make a difference in these communities. But it starts with health education. It doesn't start with passing out medicines. You know, passing out medicines is necessary. We treat as medical professionals, but we have to do it safely. And we realize the long-term impact of what we do is really going to come from how we teach. When they designed these guidelines and when they came up with these, you know, kind of these primary education points for most developing, you know, they apply really to all developing communities, uh, they, were, they were looking at this. Now, this is an old slide. Uh, based on West Africa numbers, but I think it came out in 2001. But I like the slide because it kind of breaks it down really nice, and and the numbers haven't uh, changed significantly since that time. Uh, And the key component you need to look at here is that 50% of of child deaths are a result of malnutrition. Now, last year that was somewhere around 9.2 million deaths. Now, malnutrition played a core component of of 50% of those. Diarrhea, 15%. EPI diseases, I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. Expanded program immunization, that is uh, basically uh, immunization responsive diseases. 15, 20% of those child, children died. Uh, and 20% of malaria. This is in a West African country where there's a high prevalence. You know, In that region, there's a much higher prevalence of malaria than some other countries. Uh, care, we talk about care-seeking behaviors. This one uh, is something we want moms to come away with, with that information. They need to understand why do we, why do they teach on this? Why did they come up with this primary directive? Poor and delayed care-seeking behaviors contribute to 70% of the uh, of under five deaths, which means 70% of the 9.2 million children that we're talking about of poor care-seeking played at least some component in their death. Before our primary objective here, uh, whether you're short-term or long-term, when a mom comes to you in a clinic, you want to know that before leaving the clinic, the caretaker will know at least two danger signs or two signs of when to seek care immediately. It's real simple. Malnutrition. We talked about about half of the child deaths that are resulting nationally are, uh, result globally are, related to malnutrition, we could do a lot with just teaching moms about breastfeeding and making sure moms exclusively breastfeed. Studies show that, that better breastfeeding practices could save 800,000 lives per year globally. Uh, and, and that's something that is very simple to, to counsel mom on breastfeeding practices. And, and we need to get more involved with that. We need to know, moms need to know that exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life is incredibly important. But also we need to know what feeding programs are available in the communities that you're serving. Um, there are instances where you might not be able to have a child breastfed, the mother's died, or 
you know, a lot of the doctors are telling the mothers that if they have HIV, they have bad milk and not to breastfeed. So it's imperative that you know what resources are there for them. And it just takes a little digging, and you can find either the hospital has a program or maybe a local orphanage. Um, recently, we ran into an orphanage that was having mothers pump, and they were using the breast milk for other babies. So um, there are a lot of resources out there in the communities. We just have to know what they are when we start teaching this. Because if they say, well, I can't breastfeed, there's no way, then we need to have another resource for them. It does not. You're it right. It does not, correct. The who does not. But um, here. <laughs> uh, the WHO does not stand by that. If they feel that if that's all they have, they need to breastfeed. It's more valuable that they breastfeed than nutritionally they'll do better. But in the communities out there that you're working in, the physicians are saying to the mothers, don't breastfeed. You have bad milk. They're more likely to die from a diarrheal Exactly. exactly, exactly. And But if it's too late and they've stopped breastfeeding, you just need to know. But she's absolutely right. We just checked on that because that was my question. Did they change that yet? <laughs> uh, you know, many of you have worked in these communities for a long time, but for those of you who haven't, uh, remember that it's the kids that are moderately to mild, mal, sometimes moderately malnourished, not, not severely malnourished, that, that often die. Uh, from malnutrition. And the reason of that is is that malnutrition is a very vicious cycle. Uh, when they're mildly malnourished, uh, they have lowered resistance. We all know that medically. Uh, but infection comes into play there. When infection comes into play, poor appetite. You know, I know we have some pediatricians here. Uh, you know, how, how easy is it to get your three-year-old to drink anything when they have a sore throat or eat anything? So it, it becomes... Then you have a you have a child with fever. Then add on higher you know higher energy utilization in, from the hypermetabolic state. Then which leads to more malnutrition, which leads to lower you know lower resistance, which leads to more infection. And the cycle continues. And and these kids can decline from from mildly or moderately malnourished to dead in 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 a very short amount of time. And and when you can find these, and that's why I really advocate that we assess these kids for malnutrition because what you can do educationally in these points of and, and just for the future, mom's even future reference, you could save this child's life. When we talk about management of uh, diarrhea and dehydration, uh, studies show that breastfeeding can reduce diarrhea mortality by 24 to 27%, uh, morbidity by 8 to 20%, and in infants age 0 to 5 months, it can avert 3% of the pneumonia deaths. Uh, the reason I put that slide on there is that it also comes into play. The more you can teach mom about how to sustain the health of her family while you're there, the more even in times of catastrophe like a cholera outbreak, can, are they more capable of sustaining their fam the health of their family during that time. So education is the primary core component of what we should be doing in short-term teams. It really is. When we talk about the treatment recommendations, what is on that end? Well, uh, WHO recommends five general prevention treatment guidelines, at least from a child health perspective. And again, most of the directives are geared towards child maternal health. 
So we're talking a lot about child health, and that's why, is because that's where the directives really kind of lie. Immunizations, we kind of all know that one. That's no surprise. Uh, Anti-helminth prophylaxis, we want to give them parasite medicine. We know that. Vitamin A supplementation, how many knew about that one? Okay. Great. Good. Uh, zinc supplementation and iron supplementation, and I'm going to explain why and what the dosages are for these uh, for these areas because these are very important, uh, very important things you want to do. Immunization programs. Let's just talk about that for a second. About 20%, as we saw, of the 9.2 million children uh, child deaths are, are really resulting from uh, immunizable diseases. So. We, we want to think about how we could maybe bring that into short-term programs, but the only real way you're going to do it is to partner with health systems and work through a local health system. Remember what I said at the beginning? That 95% of the problems or, or some of the complications that arrive from short-term missions could be averted just by working through and with local health systems and, and not the, just the local church. Of course, we want to invite the church. We, you know, we want to be, have them a part of what we're doing. But working in health systems is one of the probably more effective ways to provide lasting health benefits to the community. I think, too, we have to realize this can all be a partnership. We can work with the church. We can work with the health system. We can be doing all of these things at the same time. Um, we don't ever want to leave any spiritual or physical orphans out there. So the church can be there to after we evangelize or do whatever we're doing in that aspect of it, take care of that. But we have to have that medical professional continuum going on. Um, you can imagine if somebody came into the United States and immunized and then just left, we'd have no record. These people need to have records. You need to know how that country does it so that you can leave that with them and that they don't get hurt in any way by immunization. You guys have the... Uh, uh the documentation for kids that I hand, that we handed out. Take a look at that. One of the things that we can do with that information is, is I know it's kind of long and it may, may be a little bit more complicated than what you're used to using, but one of the key things about that is, is that it helps us gather immunization data. We can look at disease. If we can record that information along with weights, heights of immunization data, we can gather a lot of information from that community. And even if you're not giving immunizations, if I know what the prevalence of kids, you know, how many kids are really immunized in that community, we can go back to the local health system and say, okay, what can we do? Where's the breakdown? Why aren't these kids getting immunized? A good percentage of the time, it's what they call cold chain. It's being able to keep those, those uh, pharmaceuticals refrigerated to the point, at the point of distribution. So how can we help them overcome some of the obstacles? So it gives, us a, it gives us a point where we can go in and partner with them and say, okay, look, this is the data we've got out of your community. How can we help you fix this? And, and, and it gives you, it'll give you a, a, a good inroad uh, to be invited and, and to be invited to be part of the health system and what the health system is doing, not just kind of working out on the side in the periphery and not really being involved with what's happening in the health in the community. Anti-helminth prophylaxis. Uh, the reason this is important is uh, the, the percentages change depending upon the literature you look at. But on average, 50 to 7 percent of the daily required caloric intake is what most children in developing communities get. Now, when you add parasites into that mix, they can be really nutritionally uh, starved. Uh, and, and if we can get the parasites out of them, 
that at least nutritionally helps us, and we all know that. Uh, and that's something we almost all do. What we don't do is this. And, and this is something that vitamin A supplementation can reduce mortality by 23% in this population group if just by giving them the right dose of vitamin A every six months. Uh, and, and that's vitally important to know. This is, I, I have this liquid stuff. This stuff is 20,000 units per drop. Uh, got it on the Internet. That's how I found it. Uh, it's emulsified liquid vitamin A. It's about $20 for that container. Uh, we take five to ten of them. And, and you, can, you can give an entire community of children vitamin A supplementation. But you want to document it, and you want to know that the local health system, if they're being seen, knows that you have done that. Okay? Uh, so that's, that's important. But that's something we really should be doing for all these kids. Uh, the other thing that we don't see much, oh, I'll get to the dosages here in a minute. We'll talk about what the dosing is on that. But the other thing we don't do much of is, is this, which is short-term teams really should also be providing iron and zinc supplementation. And these, again, are, are WHO guidelines for, for child health. Uh, the rationale is that iron supplementation can also uh, has also been shown to impact child development uh, at age two, and zinc supplementation has been shown to reduce diarrhea incidence by 18% and pneumonia incidence by 41%. Those are pretty uh, those are pretty astounding numbers when you think about it, and these are very very simple things we can do uh, to make a real lasting difference in these communities. Oh. You haven't talked for a while. My voice is getting tired. <laughs> I get the long ones. Did you notice that? Uh, vitamin A treatment, give first dose any time after six months of age to all children. Therefore, give vitamin A every six months to all children after the age of six months. Give an extra dose of vitamin A, same dose as for supplementation, as part of treatment if the child has measles or persistent diarrhea. If the child has had a dose of vitamin A within the past month, we do not give vitamin A. Always record the dose of vitamin A given on the child's chart, aged vitamin A dose, and six months up to 12 months, 100,000 IUs, one year, and older, 200,000 IUs. Those are not exactly doses you're used to seeing here in the United States, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but those, that is the international standard. That comes right out of the uh, Integrated Management of Childhood Illness Guidelines. Uh, which are I've pulled out and uh, put them right here for you. This is basically everything these kids should get. Uh, 100,000, and, and they're given mubendazole, 500 milligrams, but any parasite medicine that's a one-time dose would be work, albendazole, mubendazole. Uh, yeah, and, you know, in the vitamin A supplementation. But, again, we kind of want to know, you want to make sure that the local health system knows you're giving vitamin A or if you're giving vitamin, you know, immunizations, you want to be, you know, attuned with what's going on in the community and, and ideally working with the local health establishment. Don't try to do some of this on your own. They should at least, I mean, you can do this on any team, but at least know whoever is kind of in charge of public health in the area should know that you're giving, you're dosing these kids and you should remember, you should remember, mom should remember. Now, if they get a dose, you know, if they get a repeat dose, uh, it's okay. Uh, if they're sick, they often will repeat the dose, and we'll go into that in a minute. Okay. You look at these little hands in the school. Um, 
Palmer, Palmer Presence. We give iron. Give oral anti-malarial if high malaria risk. Give all children one year or older mebendazole if they, or almendazole, whichever you use, if they have not had a dose in the previous six months. And then advise the mother when to return immediately. Um, you know, that is so important. And if you are um, going into a community for a week or two weeks, that's a valuable time. You can have them come back for a recheck. I don't know if you've ever done that, but we have done that numerous times. If there's somebody we're really worried about and just questioning, mm, we don't know, we ask them to come back. We give them a slip, tell them don't go through the line, come back, we want to see you. And it's a great opportunity just to follow up yourselves and make sure that they're well taken care of. Uh, these guidelines are posted on our site. You can dial it. It's uh, the IMCI chart booklet. You can get it from there. Of course, you can get it from WHO. You type in IMCI, but sometimes you have to you have to kind of dig for these documents. So I tried to pick out the core ones on child health. And if you go to our website and you go to the child health resources section on the left, click it, and they're all there for you to link to and download uh, any of these documents and any of these. The chart booklet is really helpful. You should always have that with you because it gives you kind of good parameters as far as when absolutely to refer, what can be treated in the community, what has to be referred to a hospital and inpatient case, you know, services. So it, it, it's really a good good guide to carry with you. Of, and, you know, it's, it, it's worth printing in color because it's color-coded as far as the triage system is concerned. Uh, notice these hands. That's something that we don't necessarily think about as, you know, practitioners coming up and developing you know, that have all the resources available to us. Uh, but one of the things that you have to learn is when you're practicing in resource-poor environments that, that you have to practice with what you have. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, I'll give it to you at the end, and we'll give you I'll give you all that information. Uh, the, uh, the other thing is, is from TALC, if you go to the education section of our, you know, our, our, sec, uh, of our website, you can, you know, there's a link to TALC. Uh, teaching aids at lowest cost out of the UK. I don't know if they have a booth here this year or not. No. Uh, great, great resources, but they have, uh, they actually have the uh, hemoglobin strips that are, they're cheap. And, and they are enough to, they're yeah. wonderful. With strips. Yeah. They're color metric and you can give you a guesstimate of what your hematocrit is. It's yeah. not exact, but it's close enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to let you know. No. <laughs> Don't even. <laughs> uh, I, post, I pulled this out of the, the IMCI chart book, which is the, uh, of the, the key components I wanted you to get out of this is, one, if you're given out ORS or rehydration salts, you want to know mom really knows how to mix them, okay, because that is a medicine and it can be dangerous if it's not mixed properly, okay. So make sure that you have a teaching station or something that really teaches mom how to mix ORS if you're giving out ORS. Number two is if you have a child with diarrhea, you want to give them ORS, and you also want to give them zinc supplementation. Okay? It's the kids that have diarrhea get the zinc. Okay? The dosages on here, I'm not going to go extensively into dosing, but if you, uh, if you look down here, it'll kind of give it to you. But this document, like I said, is the IMCI chart booklet, and it's on the website. You can download the whole thing, and it gives you all these dosages and everything you could need. Also on the site, just as, as a prelim. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, 
Can you explain what IMCI is? Oh, I'm sorry. IMCI is Integrated Management of Childhood Illness. That is kind of the, the guideline set up by the WHO as far as how to do child health in, in you know, resource-poor environments. There's also on the website, if you go to IMCI training program, you can download the entire program free. Uh, we put it out there because we want you guys to have it. Uh, and, and it's an interactive tutorial. You can go through the whole program. And some of it is, is real simplistic. When you look at it, it just asks questions because a lot of the, the community health providers don't have a stethoscope. They don't have an otoscope. It assumes if you have one, you look. You do your complete assessments if you have the proper tools. But if you don't, it gives you even guidelines to use even if you don't have the proper tools, if that makes any sense or not. Uh, all children presenting with diarrhea, again, should receive the zinc. This kind of covers the, covers the dosages. I'm not going to go too much into that because we're coming close to the end here, and I want to give you guys some practical time to think a little bit about this stuff. Uh, assessment standards. If you are seeing kids in a developing community, uh, you want to look at mid-upper arm circumference at least. Uh, mid-upper arm circumference uh, is, is roughly equivalent to height for weight uh, as far as a diagnostic or prognostic values uh, related to mortality. There's on, Where did we get those tape measures? Uh, those are from talc also. There actually is a, uh, I forget, Jody, what do you call those tape measures again? Do you know the... MUAC. Yeah, yeah, they're mid-upper arm but circumference. They're, they're a doctor's name, yeah. They're, red, yeah, they're color-coded by red, yellow, and green. Okay, and You put it around the upper arm, and yellow is, or uh, green is, they're fine. You go into yellow, eh, they're moderately malnourished. You go into red, and they're pretty severely malnourished. But it gives you millimeters of, based on that. Basically, for any child between one and five years of age, their upper arm circumference doesn't change much. So if you measure it and it's more than 12 and a half centimeters, you're okay. And if it's down right. around 10, you're in trouble. Exactly. So that's a quick reference guide for you guys to use. Usually what we do is at least the kids that are measuring low on their mid-upper arm circumference will want to go ahead and do their full uh, weight for height, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, this is kind of a rough guide for feeding programs. And, and ideally, when you're looking at a community and you're, when you're working at a community with a high prevalence of child malnutrition, you want to kind of cooperate with and know what resources are available in that community. And there is uh, – did we hand out the community assessment guide? Not in here. I can. If you uh, to. Yeah, well, if you could – I'll just put it on the back uh, table. There's a community assessment guide we use that kind of says before you go to a community to work, what are, the, what are the programs? And it kind of asks a whole bunch of questions of the folks that work there regularly as far as who's working there. Is UNICEF, does World Food Program have a program there? What, what resources are available? And it will give you kind of a base knowledge of what's happening in the community. So when you find these kids, uh, you know the resources you can plug them into. Less than 13.5 uh, centimeters. Of really, those are the kids we want to be paying attention to. At that point, we'll go ahead and do weight for height so that we can kind of get a little bit more establishment. The, uh, the, the bell curves now and the current standards are really weight for height. What you'll see in the IMCI paperwork that we handed out, I think those are just weight. Uh, but the, the present standard is really establishing weight for height. Now, if you can collect this data on a whole community, that's great information to have for a local health system. And that was what a benefit that would be if you can get that data for them. Even if you only collect the... Uh, 
even if you only collect mid-upper arm circumferences and only gather the data on the kids that are sick. But if at least if you have a no, you kind of have a, a ballpark of what the malnutrition prevalence is in that community. That's very powerful stuff for a local health system, and it's going to get you invited in to be more a part of what they're doing. Uh, children with very low weight, when we talk about the bell curve, obviously we're talking about Z-scores. We're talking about kids with more than three standard deviations from the mean. Those are the kids that are severely malnourished. Those are the kids that are going to need inpatient feeding referral. They have to go to an inpatient hospital if you're going to save them. Uh, the kids that are, uh, you know, two standard deviations from the mean, those are the kids that are typically can be, you know, can be dealt with maybe on an outpatient basis or maybe an outpatient feeding program where they receive continual feeding for four to six hours per day. This is a mix of what we call Neri Mamba. It's, a, uh, it's peanut butter and vitamins, okay? You'll save more kids with this than, than all the medicines you have to take. Uh, you know, I usually, like, we had all of our kids bring a big jar of peanut butter last time. We took, we took a group of medical students to Haiti recently. Uh, and, and with that, then we mixed up. Now, this is taken into account that it's not, you don't have all the sugars and all the peanut butter. It's just regular peanut paste. But regular peanut butter with high concentration vitamin mix and about given those kids that are, you know, a little bit on the rough edge, the, the vitamin supplementation, the vitamin A, the, you know, parasite medicine, and a, and a thing in Nuri Mamba will give them more <laughs> in the way of nutritional <laughs> replenishment than, than a lot of the things, a lot of other things we're going to do. A couple of things you need to remember is they love it, so they want to eat it all at one time. And they need to understand that there's vitamins in that, and that's not a good idea. And the other thing is, is they get one tablespoon a day yes. for until it's all gone. And, and that's how it's going to be most effective. Uh, it would be great for one day if they ate the whole thing, which I saw a little one do that before we could get to them. <laughs> I was like, ah! So, um, yeah, you have to be real careful of that. It does taste pretty nummy, though. Okay. Uh, if anybody wants to write down some of these references, here they are. Yeah. Uh, also, oh, that's the. This is the IMCI handbook. That's also on the website. You can download that as well. Well um, worn, you can see. <laughs> yeah, that's gotten carried in a lot of places. This is also an article, uh, not to be self-promoting, that Candy and I wrote on healthcare missions. Of, and Grace. Oh, and Grace Tesler, who is not here. Uh, but uh, this is probably a good resource too. Uh, I think you can get it through Lippincott. It's called uh, "The Promise and Perils of Short-Term Healthcare Missions," and uh, it, it kind of gives over some of these ideas on how to maybe improve and how to do a little bit better when it comes to, you know, the brigade-style of outreach. Of um, this is our trifold that we have. It has our website on it. it uh, we didn't bring any cards. I apologize. So if you want to grab one of these on your way out, just so you have that information, that way you can. The links are great. You know, even if you don't do anything with the website, but go to the links. There's some awesome educational opportunities on there Let for you. Uh, we have one story I want to share with you guys oh. before we uh, before we call it a day, and I think it's really important for you guys to. Uh, Sorry, I thought I had this out to hear this. Uh, because now that we talked about all these things, we need to look at kind of the complexity of how uh, something to think about as far as how to think through this thing we call health missions. I'm going to have Candy read it because it's uh, 
I think it comes better from a mom's voice. <laughs> um, this is the life and death of Raku. Um, or actually, Raku's the mom. This is her baby. Uh, the account is from a, the Raku story. It's a book by Sheila Zerbrig. And it's based on a true incident. And I'll try not to make too many bangs on the um, microphone for you. Raku had wanted to only breastfeed her baby. This had long been the tradition of women in her village. However, in order for her family to survive, Raku had to work in the landowner's fields from dawn to dusk. With the long hours of separation from her baby, she had little choice but to give her baby other food, soon as she no longer could produce much breast milk. As both a landless peasant and a woman, Raku was doubly disadvantaged. For long hours of exhausting work, she was paid too little to adequately feed her family. Since the age of seven, her son, Cannon, had been helping make ends meet by taking the cattle of several landowning families out to graze in the scrub. While she was working in the distant fields, Raku left her baby in their wattle hut in the care of her five-year-old daughter, Panu. Each morning before dawn, Raku would haul water from the distant water hole. She would pound a few handfuls of millet and cook it into a gruel for the family to eat. Although there was often not enough to fill their stomachs, Raku would always leave a little on the plate, instructing Panu to feed it to the baby while her mother was at work in the distant fields. Even with the older children also working, the family's earnings could scarcely buy enough food. The baby, like the rest of the family, often went hungry. Worsening malnutrition and repeated bouts of diarrhea soon became a vicious cycle. Sometimes Raku took the sick baby to a traditional healer who gave him rice water and herbal teas. The baby would usually get better for a few days, but soon Raku's baby became thinner and thinner. <coughs> One day he developed such severe di- diarrhea that did not get much better even when Raku gave him the traditional remedies of rice water and herbal tea. His runny stomach continued for several days until the baby was as limp and shriveled as a rice paddy in a drought. In desperation, Raku decided to take her baby to the hospital in the city. This was a hard decision as Raku had to miss a day's work and a day's pay. At best, this meant a day without food for the family because they had no reserves. At worst, she might lose her job, the consequences of which she was afraid to think about. She knew that a wiser mother would let her sick baby die to preserve the rest of the family. But Raku's love for her baby was too strong. Raku sold a bronze pot she had inherited from her mother, the last of her remaining possessions of any value, to pay for the bus fare and medicine and took her baby to the city hospital. She had to pay a bribe to the guard to let her in the hospital gate. After hours of waiting and long lines, at last her baby was seen. By then, the baby was on verge of death. The doctor scolded Raku for her waiting so long and not for taking better care of her baby. He referred her to a nurse who carefully explained to her the importance of breastfeeding and something the nurse called hygiene. Above all, the nurse emphasized her baby needed more and better food. Raku listened in silence. Meanwhile, the doctor put a needle into a vein in the baby's ankle and connected it by a thin tube to a bottle of glucose water. By evening, the baby's shrunken body filled out a bit, and he seemed more alert. The diarrhea had stopped, and the late-night nurse removed the needle from the baby's leg. The next morning, a doctor gave Raku a prescription for medicines to buy in the pharmacy and sent them home. On the way home, the baby's diarrhea began again. 
Arriving back home, Raku had neither food nor money, nor anything left to sell. Her baby died a short time later. So now that we learned that what the standards are and what we're supposed to teach and all the things that we need to do, we understand that the complexities of, um, of developing communities are, are way beyond anybody's control. And, and really only God has the answers. Uh, and I just want to leave you with that story to think about uh, what, what role you have in missions and what role... Uh, you know, you can play even in short-term missions to affect that. And, and you need to develop, when you, when you start thinking about health education, to be a, a core component of what you're doing, think about the complexity uh, and, and, and think about being a minister of the gospel and walking alongside Raku in that struggle and helping her develop strategies uh, that, that really can change your life. I think that's all we have, guys. Have a great day. God bless you all. We're going to be in 202 for a different presentation in a few minutes if anybody's interested.